We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Speaking of which, can I just plug? I'm finally finalizing it. The mikvah, the dunk, the ritual, the circumcision, the whole business is finally happ- happening April 26th. Um, you'll find this finally. In Miami? No, no, no. In Austin, I'm timing it with a crypto conference consensus. I'm going to go hang out with the crypto bros. <laughs> and then we're gonna get a little prick, there'll be a little blood, a little bit mikvah, a little Judaism, and boom, we're 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 killing two very different birds with the same stone. Uh, April twenty sixth in Austin, Texas. Let's let's get this on camera. This should be we should film. <laughs> <laughs> zen. Including yeah. the circumcision. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, so this is well. Let's not go with too many details. Some people do it themselves. The really metal oh. way of doing it is doing it yourself. Oh, uh, <laughs> please, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Let's move to a new topic. Everyone just cringes at once. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Moment of Zen. With returning guest Amjad Massad, we start this podcast by referencing my Cognitive Revolution AI podcast interview with the CEO of Replica, whose recent decision to turn off the erotic roleplay function caused uproar for male users, one of whom called the move something akin to a dying marriage where the partner refuses to have sex anymore. We then get into disenfranchised men more broadly, AI doomerism, effective altruism, the new right, and more. So let's get into it. But first, let's hear from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. You know, I went to sign up for Replica because I had no idea what you were talking about. And it wanted to charge me 10 bucks a, a month for like an e-girlfriend. And I felt so embarrassed. It felt like buying porn or something. I, I just refused to do it. So I'm going to have to go into the conversation. Okay. I, I bought it. So I bought it. And it really sucks. I I, I think Eric is in the uh, group chat that I talked yeah. about it in. But basically, 
I downgraded my. But view Amjad, you actually have a wife. That's a thing. Your baseline is too high. You probably talk to a very normal, <laughs> nice, attractive woman. That you may not be the target market for this. Amjad is the reality. <laughs> but but I, I don't think it's even using LLMs like, like just from a pure technology perspective, it like literally sucks. Like I can build a better one in on the weekend. And I thought about it because like they're making like what close to a billion dollars. And revenue. Oh my god! But it's 10, 10 million subscribers paying ten dollars a year. Uh, that's a hundred dollars, right? What's what's that? That's like a billion dollar ARR, right? And that that's insane. Um, I wonder how much this is going to hurt their revenue. Um, so but, but flesh it out. You you downgraded your view of humanity because you didn't think that there were so many men who were so desperate. <laughs> to need the shitty version. Yes. The chatbot was so bad that someone <laughs> getting any type of fulfillment of their like intimacy and intimate life from this crappy thing is it, it caused a huge update in my mind about the what I think about like the average individual. Or maybe they're not average and maybe this is so, so another view on this is maybe this is like actually, uh, uh, you know, um, prying on on uh, on on some some part of society that that we don't know much about, and maybe I, maybe it, it's not part of my world model. Maybe because these people are not out and about, and actually, uh, I get to interact with them, uh, and maybe that's like a good piece of data for me that you know there are people out there that are so lacking in any kind of human contact that anything that sort of resembles any sort of like real contact or intimacy is actually compelling. I I think if I could maybe diagnose the problem, I see we're skipping ahead in our agenda state of men. I think here's the problem. And my, my, one of my favorite writers, Michel Welbeck, uh, winner of the Prix Goncourt, by the way, I will mention in passing more than, I think more than one, um, wrote in his first book, uh, Accension du Domaine de la Lutte, uh, which is translated as whatever in English, I think, which is a terrible <laughs> translation. But he basically predicted that as you as you created an open, basically transactional market in human relations, as there are in the economy, you would naturally have some men that would draw all the attention and some who wouldn't at all. He basically predicted incels is what he did, like in the 90s. And so what you're seeing is, is I think, the, the inevitable outcome of that, of that process, Amjad. Um, and this is technology filling in the gaps for where society has sort of failed. So, so what you're saying is the because the sexual market is liberalized, uh, the it's it's sort of extreme winners and extreme losers. Basically, we've created a marketplace. I hate using it as a marketplace because in some sense we're conceding the point, um, but in which certain alpha males succeed and everybody else fails. Yes, correct. So society uh, by by saying that society failed them. It's, it's implying that society should somehow regulate this. I don't personally believe that, but I, I think Ross, uh, Ross Douthat, who's a New York Times columnist and safely within the Overton window, I'll mention in passing, um, did mention, I, how did he phrase it? Something about marriage being, or monogamy being, what, what term did he use? He, it was a little bit spicy. Yeah. So, so I remember uh, Jordan yeah. Pearson uh, said right. enforced monogamy. Right. It's one of the things that he got canceled for. Definitely, yeah. Which is like not the government mandating monogamy, but actually like the sort of society uh, uh, cultural sort of expectation, putting a huge, yeah, cultural penalty to to polygamy. 
uh, and now that the cultural penalty is gone, um, it it sort of you have um, you have uh, you have a, like uh, like any sort of free market dynamic end up looking like a power law or a Pareto distribution. Um, and therefore, they're like a really long tail of losers and a very small minority of extreme winners. Um, do you, you know, Dan or Eric? Do you, do you believe in in forced monogamy or that the society should should do that? Well, the, the stats bear out what you're saying. There, there were stats that going around on Twitter yesterday saying sixty percent of women ages eighteen to twenty nine are uh, in a relationship with with a man. And thirty um, percent of men, ages eighteen to twenty nine, are in a relationship with uh, with women. So either women are just all dating older, and you know there are multiple women per per top men. It ex- and, and I wonder it doesn't say anything about cheating, right? <laughs> I wonder how how many of the women that are uh, you know are also cheating with the, with the top men. Well, one thing that's also even before monogamy is this um, kind of just idea of of encouraging marriage of encouraging just partnering. And that, that's, the, that's one version of, of enforcing monogamy or encouraging uh, monogamy. But um, I don't think monogamy really serves the, the woman is, 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 is the question. Uh, <laughs> and Tony, you're you, don't, you don't think monogamy serves women. What do you mean? By sorry, that? sorry. I don't think uh, not having monogamy serves. I don't, I don't think what we have right now, serves women, even though it's in the name of women. Uh, Louis Perry has a popular book right now uh, against the sexual revolution, where she's uh, arguing that what was um, that sexual liberation, while done in the name of feminism, actually uh, set women back in that it was harder. This is her argument. It's harder for uh, women to find a good man because men have, you know, the power in the sexual marketplace, the, the best men, at least they don't have to settle down. But that didn't change the the quality of men. So, like, I think in some ways that that argument doesn't make sense because people were then settling before, but it was just because of a more cultural norm. I, like, to back to Amjad's point, I think this is all rooted in the fact that if you don't have, I don't know, a bunch of education, or you're an entrepreneur, or, or you know, you basically succeed in capitalism uh, as a man today. Your options suck compared to where they were 70 years ago, right? Post-war, you could have a high school level education, more or less, get a job at your local factory. There was civil society, you know, the civic organizations that were associated with that. You get married, have kids, and you get a pension. And like, there's like a fulfilling existence. Uh, You know, take any town in the Midwest that used to have that factory that doesn't have it now. And and basically all you have is fentanyl um, and talented people end up moving to major cities where they then go get the education and work in these high power, you know, high paying knowledge worker jobs. Like, I, I think that's the root cause of it is wh- what do you do if you're 18 or 20 and all you have is your kind of physicality. Traditionally we had war for that. Uh, we don't have that anymore. I mean, at least in, in the U S what, what are you supposed duty. to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You smoke weed and play call of duty. Like what, what, what are you reasonably supposed to do? And any version of it is, oh, well, we just need to get these people to go to college is just like a completely asinine, unrealistic point of view. Like that they're just not going to go to college. Like what the, those people need are some version of a job that is fulfilling, that gives them some level of status in their community. 
And we as a society have, have devalued that through kind of the endless HRification of everything, basically. Well, even the college track uh, has become somewhat less welcoming to a lot of groups of men. Um, yeah, I think now 60% of college graduates are, are women. Yep. Um, and if you look at the graphs, the woman is climbing up, which is great. But the men graduating is actually going down over time. Um, and I think the um, in, in the U.S. especially, in an effort to boost women um, inclusion uh, in education, I think they um, they have done a poor job at uh, you know uh, keeping men engaged and interested in that in that track. But that is not to say that it's actually the best track and that it's actually like a good thing for everyone to go to college. Education is obviously good, but um, there are different ways of doing education, especially um, now with AI and what's happening in AI. It's clear that there are some jobs that are actually better tracks for quality of life and long-term uh, earning than uh, knowledge work. And, and primarily, I think tr trade uh, type work, um, you know, perhaps being a plumber is now um, more protected from disruption than being a lawyer. Um, I don't know if you know, but there's this OpenAI funded startup that's like building an AI lawyer and people saying that's, uh, I haven't read too much into it, but people are saying that's, it's, that they're already deploying it and it's quite compelling product. Um, and yeah, that's just one job. We know Chad GPT kind of, uh, passed the medical examination, uh, and these things are, we're just in the early innings of it. And so, uh, it, it might actually be rational to, to actually go into different tracks of education to actually do something that's, uh, going to be more meaningful contribution to society or something that we would need in a post sort of AI um, disruption. You know, we, we, uh, I'm sorry, even we might be disrupted. When ChatGPT came out, I actually entered, what does the future of Web3 marketing look like? And it more or less pooped out like Spindle's high-level pitch. And I, was so, <laughs> I, I felt so made obsolete. <laughs> if, if, it, if they could just like yell at engineers and then do pitch meetings, that's it. I, I'm out of a job, basically. Um, but no, it actually did. It actually did output. Or, or podcasting, or, or podcast. for example. Yeah. It yeah. could do this podcast for us. <laughs> So, so Some people, I just want to go back to the to the ethics of of enforced monogamy versus um, versus full free markets um, free uh, you know, free marketplace for uh, sexual dynamics. Um, what's interesting is that that sort of like ethical question matches capitalism as well, it matches uh, just the free market in general. So. If you equalize, you actually encroach on people's yes. freedoms, um, but you create an underclass. If you maximally liberalize, you create huge winners, but you also support a lot more uh, individual freedom and uh, e equality of opportunity. Um, and so, so that's the fundamental trade-off, I think, for society in general, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, mating or um, or just living and like making a living. 
and that was fair pushback to Jordan Peterson and uh, Joe Rogan on, on the Joe Rogan podcast. He said, Hey, if you're, you know, so forgiving of inequality in the free market and you just harp on, Hey, the world's unequal, why aren't you more forgiving of inequality in, in this area as well? But, but the reverse holds, holds true. Like you would think that one should be consistent on your view of egalitarian. Well, I think part of the problem is that you can remedy, you know, wealth inequality through various welfare programs. But if you're trying to remedy uh, what effectively devolves to sexual access inequality, then then what is there going to be sexual welfare as well? Like that's the, there's not much you can actually do about it at the end of the day, right? Other than enforcing, yeah. Well, you, you, haven't, you haven't played with Replica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the UBI. Yeah. The, uh, no, no, not, not you, don't, you don't force, but you have a cultural expectation. Of, I guess you could do it indirectly by just encouraging marriage. Well, I mean, there are countries in the world that this does exist. Like right. theocracies like do exist. And, you know, like you don't have to go that far. It's too. against the law to to have liberalized sexual relations and, and such. So like, I, I, I don't know. I, I think like the enforcement monogamy is an interesting like thought experiment, but I, I don't see much practicality of it. I, I think it's like the root cause is like, how, how can you increase status in society for people that aren't necessarily going to play this? you know, extreme outlier knowledge work game. And and how can we get back to a little bit more of in, you know, call it the 1950s, still plenty of problems. But if you didn't have some fancy education, like you could still have a pretty meaningful economic existence and have level of status in your society. It's like, so, you know. so you're saying it's a sort of beyond the pale to try to do anything, or uh, it's not practical, or perhaps super unethical, gets into weird territory to try to do anything about equalizing the meeting marketplace, uh, unlike wealth, which we know how to do with taxing, whatever. I wonder if pre-income tax United States uh, would have thought the same, right? Like uh, now we live in a world where like taxation is such a, a standard way of doing things. But there was a time when America was like a lot more libertarian. And the idea of the government kind of like really getting a big portion of your income was probably unthinkable. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're in this world where it's so uh, obvious that you should take people's money. You should confiscate people's money to redistribute it. But like, you know, uh, like if you think about it from first principles, why is that uh, worse than confiscating people's sexual freedom? <laughs> uh, so I was going to say, well, yeah. That question is unanswerable. I'm done. I, I was just going to observe because one of the other squares in the bingo on the MOZ bingo card is measuring Israel. So if you were to look at one Western country where marriage rates have stayed high is Israel. And I think what's going on there is not necessarily a, any sort of welfare program, obviously. I think it's also postponed adulthood as part of this, right? Like adult adolescence, the idea that you live like an adolescent throughout your 30s, which, by the way, I, you know, I was at least partly guilty of, to be clear, um, is definitely part of it. And like there, there's no enforced marriage in Israel, obviously. In the sort of conservative Jewish communities, that's a small, that's a minority of the population. It's the fact that you're shipped off to war at 18, right? And you come back a man, like it or not, when you're 20, 21, and you assume a man's responsibilities as a wife, children, job, all the rest of it. You can't sort of just dabble around in adolescence forever. You just cannot, right? And I think there's nothing pushing us to do that, to assume the responsibilities of sort of historical uh, you know, adulthood in the form of either war or anything else. In Israel, they do have it because they're in a state of perpetual war. But here, we, we don't. And uh, that's something you could enforce. But okay. I, I think there's something to that, Antonio, in the sense of kids being the kind of flip for most right. people in terms of maturity. 
Uh, like, what was that? Uh, Justin Murphy had that tweet recently where it showed him like he had been partying all night on drugs and wearing underwear outside smoking a cigarette and then right. now it's like him with his kid and then he had that other cope tweet of like how hard it was being a parent and like okay yeah anyone who's a parent like it's just part of doing that but but there is also it's it's like time to put away childish things but if the average age of when people are having kids is 35 plus is is gonna have an impact on society where i don't know maybe if people started having kids at 25 uh, there would be a little bit more adult perspective on, on a lot of things rather than sitting at home smoking weed and playing golf. Yeah, I think I, I read somewhere that you don't really know what life is until you've buried a parent and birthed a child, right? Then you see the true recursion that is life. And you kind of need the and of those two. And if you don't have the kid, you kind of don't really know what it is. Um, yeah. What I take away from this is that like trying to solve cultural problems with policy is probably wrong and bad and leads you to all sorts of weird outcomes. Um, but how do you solve cultural problems? Um, how do you fix the culture? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, it requires some, uh, you know, multi-decade or multi-lifetime effort to actually undo some cultural decay or any perceived uh, cultural decay. Um but it's, it's so it's very tempting to try to en enact policies. And, you know, uh, one classic libertarian book uh, called uh, Economics in One Lesson uh, basically talks about how the, the one lesson of economics is that uh, there's always second order effects. Um, and it talks about how the main thing that politicians miss or maybe intentionally um, obfuscate is that for any given policy that sounds good, we don't actually uh, think about the second order effects. Like, um, you know, Thomas Sowell, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, famously talked about how the welfare states um, increased, um, uh, increased uh, sort of single mother homes. Um, I don't know how, how true that claim is, but he, he makes a, He's very smart, makes a very compelling argument. But th there's a lot of like these cases of uh, second order effects. Um, and it, there's almost, it, it's really hard to think of one sort of economic or government policy that doesn't have negative second order effects. Maybe things that you can actually measure to be net positive uh, over time. But like, you know, uh, increasing the minimum uh, wage uh, has... Uh, negative consequences of actually pricing some people out of the labor labor markets. Uh, it increases automation and in, in, in the long term loses more jobs. Um, and so uh, it, it's actually incredibly hard to, to create uh, a policy. It requires a lot of foresight and perhaps a lot of iteration over time to create policy. And incredibly so when it is actually at bottom, not a sort of a policy situation, it's more of a cultural yeah. operating system that actually you need to change. Well, I, I, I have one example. I'm generally very pro or anti-government regulation. I agree with that from a point of view. But the book How Asia Works is a good example of you take Taiwan, Japan, and Korea post-war and compare them to some of the other Asian countries post-war. And they all basically did the same thing where they did kind of private land reform and essentially encouraged entrepreneurship at the, 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 like the most small level from a farmer standpoint. And yields started to go up. 
because now people basically, they had an incentive to work harder on their farms so that they could sell the extra produce to then kind of work their way up the economic ladder. And then the book talks through a couple of other things they did on that side. But I, I think like if I was to, to have an example of like good reg government regulation, it, it's the kind of like Asian economic miracle that happened in those three countries. But outside of that, I, I don't think your you your culture is your destiny and and the economic policies and and regulations that you're going to put in place i mean this is the famous line of if you take you know any two countries you know japan and norway norway and haiti mexico and uh you know great britain and you just swapped the people in those countries like physically from a land standpoint to take the like anti-zihan stand like the geography is not going to be the destiny there that that group of people and the the human capital is going to have a pretty big impact on on the outcome it's um to build on Andre's point it's it's you know it's possible that cultural problems require cultural solutions and and to build on the 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 out of wedlock um kind of you know rates that or the single motherhood across all races um has has grown and, and has grown significantly since since the 60s and and Charles Murray's argument is that it's because we've we've stopped shaming people who who do it. Uh, Char Charles Murray, who, who's that? <laughs> uh, Coming apart is uh you know his a non controversial book um, and uh, highly cited, and it it talks about how basically there's this trade where if you're an individual who's you know has a tough situation, it sucks to be shamed, um, and so out of you know respect for the individual, we stop doing that. But at sometimes that's a conflict with the collective, a society that's too many, you know, uh, be, uh, you know, out of wedlock mothers um, doesn't do it as well as a society that has, you know, stable two parent households across, you know, all, all populations. And so that that's 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 possible that it requires cultural solutions. By the way, you you see it a lot in companies, like this idea of like what's good for the ind individual is like bad for the collective or uh, vice versa. You as a CEO. Um, especially as you're growing a company, you're having to make that assessment like perhaps on a, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, th there are a lot of people that are really good people that end up in positions where like they're not what we call they're not scaling. Um, and the change that you're going to make is going to be usually damaging psychologically to them, to them, but it's like better for the organization. Sometimes not entirely. Sometimes you'll find a place uh, for them uh, in the organization where they're going to be happy and, and more productive. But a lot of times they're going to see it as a demotion or, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be happy with it because they lost yeah. face or, or, or something like that. And, um, but, but ultimately, um, you know, uh, you got to maximize shareholder value. <laughs> as, uh, as we always say, uh, here at moment of Zen, here at moment of Zen, the um, I want to quickly level set with the with the audience because some people might be wondering, you know, who are newer to these topics. Hey, why do we, you know, how do we reconcile that men are the most powerful people in the world with? Hey, we should start start caring about men. And for people who are unaware, you know, men are at both extremes. Men are the highest earning CEOs, the highest earning people in general. They're also uh, a majority of homelessness. You know, homeless people are men. Majority of suicides are men. Majority of hot people get killed, murdered are men. Majority of people who are in jail are men. Uh, you know, men, men are also in, in the worst position as well. And people also might be wondering why do we care that men and women aren't um, getting married or aren't aren't having kids? And it's because of what we've been talking about in previous episodes about Peter Zehan. We have a huge you know population. We're we're underpopulated. We're not at replacement rate. 
and we need to have more kids. Uh, and so what are the ways that we're going to have more kids? Either uh, we have to have better men, as Dan suggests. Uh, men have to be better than women, but that is at odds with our female empowerment. Um, no, no, I, I didn't say better than women. I think it's just we need to have all the alternatives for men who don't want to follow the no, but extreme I, outlier knowledge work. Hear, hear me out. How do Right now, I would posit that the, the problem is, so we're not having enough. There's too many single women who don't want the men that are available because they're not at their education level or employment level or whatever. And women tend not to date down, right? So either the men have to surpass them or women have to lower their standards or uh, we have to have some other, you know, like women have to not need men and have artificial wombs and men have replicas or there's polyamory, right? Like these are the only four logical solutions that I see. Do you see any other logical solutions? And uh, which do you think is most feasible? Yeah, so I, I share it in the chat. Um, this I think this website is one of the best like single page websites on the internet. Uh, what, you know, what the fuck happened in 1971. But on this site, among a whole bunch of other things, is if you look at the deviation between average male earnings and female earnings, uh, I think it's a pretty stark chart. And I don't know, I, I, I go back to is if people feel like they're not, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're starting to feel like you're kind of meeting certain levels of needs and, and thriving and certain levels of fulfillment, that's going to have a material impact on your your confidence, who you are, your behavior, and 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 your attractiveness in the marketplace. Whether people want to give a whole bunch of other projection reasons why, like if basically you have a, a stable income and and kind of like your life kind of put together, I think you become a more uh, attractive option in the marketplace. And so I I think that is the root of this issue. And we, until we solve for this, uh, and, and more college is not the answer. I don't think, I don't think there's a solution. I'm looking at the site. It's funny. It, like everything went to shit in 1971, according to the site. And I always assumed that like the last good year was 1964. I might have to update my prior. I guess it really went to shit with 1971. Who was in office? Oh, Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. So, you know, there's the there's the Nixon shock, right? I think a lot of Bitcoiners are really a uh, big fan of that uh, solution to the question, what the fuck happened in 1971, which is uh, we went off, we officially went off the uh, gold standard. Um, so the US dollar became uh, officially a fiat uh, currency. And it was supposed to be, it was actually supposed to be a um, temporary measure, um, but uh, you know, uh, last show we talked about th things that are conspiracies and, and like a lot of things in history. This started as sort of a conspiracy. They went to some elite uh, conference somewhere, um, and they decided that they're going to change the world. Basically, and the world changed that that year. Um, I don't know if all these things. Uh, I mean, Bitcoiners really make a good argument for how like almost everything in culture and the economy is downstream from um uh from from that particular decision uh like basically the idea be uh, behind it is something goes to something called um uh the um time preference so it's this austrian economics concept where uh High time preference means that you prefer gratification, you prefer pleasure today, and you discount the future heavily. 
So pleasure in the future is heavily, heavily discounted the higher uh, time preference you have. Low time preference, you actually discount the future way less. So having low time preference is good because you're investing more. You're investing in yourself. You're delaying gratification. You're investing actual money into businesses and you're building. Um, Hans Hermann Hopper, I think, called it the process of civilization. This is what how civilization is built is by having low time preference because we prefer the future. You know, when you know Europeans built these multi hundred year cathedrals, that's incredibly low time preference because you're not going to even see it in your lifetime. You're starting a project that's going to uh, be seen by your grand 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 or experienced by your grand descendants, um, and uh, and so what. Uh, what they sort of what um, the Austrians think is that the fiat currency um, actually promotes high time preference because it um, uh, promotes less uh, investments and more spending because it's much better for you to spend because the currency is going to get inflated away and your wealth is going to get inflated away. And therefore, you're raising everyone's time preference. And by raising everyone's time preference, like who has the most time preference? It's like a baby. The baby is like a pleasure th- seeking thing or an animal, right? Um, that doesn't have concept of um, really valuing future things. Uh, and so you you have a society that approaching the levels of gratification of 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 a, of a child, um, and uh, and that has all sorts of negative effects. For example, having children is not a high time preference. It's not a low time preference thing. It's a, uh, sorry. It's not a high time preference thing. Um, like it, to have a child is to like invest for many years and decades into this being that's not going to be producing a lot for for a long time, um, or being a uh, you know a good uh, positive impact on society for a long time. And so you, you just have to sacrifice a lot uh, to see anything that that comes out of, uh, that investment. Um, and so the, the Austrians think that that's like really literally what happened in 1971, like literally that year. Uh, and they make a convincing argument. I think that's the best solutions I've heard to that problem. Related to that, uh, just to add a little bit of spice to the podcast, the Amy Chua book, the triple package. One of the things that's kind of an undercurrent and she, she identifies, she's the Yale law professor who came up with the term tiger mom or popularized it. And she wrote a book about uh, immigrant groups in the United States that are successful. And she cites Chinese, Jewish, Indian, Iranian, Lebanese, Nigerian, Cuban exiles, uh, two of whom are on here, and Mormons as, uh, you know, these kind of outlier groups. And if you look at all of them, (laughs) they tend to have very, very uh, low time preference on on what they're approaching culturally. And uh, I don't know. I I think it's it's also the, the thing that didn't replicate, but people love to cite anyways, is the marshmallow test. Uh, for those on the podcast who don't know, there is a Stanford study where they put kids in a room and they had a marshmallow on a table. And they said, if the marshmallow is still here when we come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow. It sounds like that study didn't replicate, but from a kind of intellectual standpoint, it makes sense, right? So the, the kid who can hold off and understand the concept of if I wait five minutes, I get two marshmallows is the same kid who realizes studying in school is going to pay off later instead of going to party, uh, you know, inv- saving for investment, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I, I, I do think time preference is, is probably something that is also an American culture thing that has degraded over time. Um, and, and maybe because of fiat money. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's all the root is economics, Eric. It is not cultural. I don't think American culture has changed that much. And I think the economic model of the country has changed in the sense that if you're on the kind of lower end, there are really no reasonable opportunities. And I guess you could argue post-war, it's like, yeah, the rest of the world was shit. So we did have all these factory jobs because everything else had been bombed. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's a little bit more of a middle way in that we could we could figure out ways to make it so that if you live in Akron, Ohio, like there's a reasonable path for you to have some level of fulfillment if you don't have a fancy college degree. It's interesting. It, it's a lot of things. I mean, women entering the workforce and mass and um, you know that change took a while to happen, but it turns out that women are, uh, you know, the median women might be better than the median man at, at, at certainly at school, um, and that that took a few decades to play out, um, and other things as well. Uh, combined with, I mean, you you can't say dating markets, I, dating apps didn't change how people date, how people ma- uh, match, um, just that kind of the like economics of, of, of that market. And then the culture evolved alongside it, um, but yeah, I think it's a it's a number of of different factors. I, one thing I just want to comment that three years ago, this conversation would have been outside of the Overton window, but what happened is there are people like Richard Reeves who wrote a book of boys and men, or Nicholas Eberstadt wrote a book, uh, you know, Men at Work. Uh, there, some academics have kind of you know sort of crossed the quote unquote uh, the four minute mile so to speak, uh, metaphorically, where it's okay to acknowledge men as a, as a victim group, or that, that's what they're trying, or like underachieving men. And you see two reactions to that. Some are, are saying, yeah, just like every other victim group that's clearly been struggling, we should strive for you know certain equality for that group. And other group, uh, and Dan and I, uh, and Amjad and I saw this at a retreat we once did where we saw reactions, are kind of disgusted with these people <laughs> and just say, hey, tough it up like get better, like it's your fault. Do And, and it's interesting to see just the contra reactions to, to, to this group. I think that there's also just some revealed preferences that we've found through some of these apps. For example, like dating apps, as you brought up, uh, I'll put in the show notes, the classic example of, uh, so women set height preferences in the dating apps. And if you look at the distribution of male height, versus the distribution of what women put in dating apps. There's a huge, and I'm 5'11", so I would, I, I never made the dating apps. I, I, I got in a relationship before that, but I would have been cut off from this because I didn't make the six foot cutoff. And so there's like a, it's it's it's, it's not a, pre, it's not even like a normal distribution. It just gets completely dropped it's off. Six feet, it's six it's feet. funny, we were having this conversation earlier. There's a remote employee that we're having fly in. And I just made the joke, oh, for all we know, the guy is 7'2". And then we all spent the next five minutes wasting time trying to guess the guy's height. He wouldn't tell us. And then it came down to the dating cutoff. I thought it was like 5'10". Six is a pretty high cutoff, I have to say. Yeah, it's six foot. Right. But but so then people are like, oh, they're not enough good men. And it's like, well, maybe if you increased your your height preference to a little bit more of the distribution of actual heights in the world, then you you could be potentially matching with some more people. But like, it's a more of a joke to point out, but but I do think that some of the things that we have in society are not helping, right? So in a more traditional situation, there are other ways of meeting people that aren't app-based. And so the app algorithm being the primary matchmaker for a large percentage of relationships today 
if that's the case, I actually would want to see the stats on what percentage of relationships over a year are a result of, of some version of an online app. Um, but if that algorithm benefits, you know, a certain group of males or females, either or, it, it's going to have a, a, a pretty big impact on, on society, right? Pity the, four, the poor 510 Americans. Can I comment on, now that we've introduced the ghost of Amy Chu into the group? Can I comment on the other two things of her little triad thing in her in her book? Um, is, is that, are we going yes. off script a little bit too much? Yes. But she she's been canceled multiple times, right? Because she said right. hard work is good, and like you know, immigrants work harder. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, so she so of course Cuban exiles are in the in the successful list there. One thing, definitely growing up in a Cuban exile family, I definitely felt the first two things, which is a sense of superiority combined with insecurity, which is this weird toxic cocktail in which like you feel you're better than everyone around you, but there's this like gnawing anxiety about proving it some way. And that was absolutely the case that Miami Cubans were sort of perceived themselves and the whole Miami stew. Like I could kindless anecdotal examples of like perceptions my parents had in which it's like, oh, look at these barbarians we're surrounded by. But by the way, we also have to like show it like there's this deep gnawing anxiety that they wouldn't understand. Um, a friend of ours would probably call it group narcissism, right? That uh, that this group sort of had. Um, so I think those two elements, at least, of a little triple, in my personal experience, were very correct. Uh, Antonio, why don't you introduce the the group narcissism oh, concept uh, a, a well, little bit? I, I um, might piss off the person who introduced this concept to the to the. To... Wow, I'm I'm settling in for this okay, explanation. Well, all right, so okay, so the <laughs> the book in question, which is uh, unsurprisingly out of print, is uh, called uh, the the Ordeal of Civility uh, by Kaduhi. Uh, CI, I always misspell it. I think two D's, U H I. Um, oh man, where to start? The the theory is that um, Jews in Europe in the nineteenth century felt this deep gnawing anxiety around getting along um, with you know the Protestant Germans that it created this massive neurosis. I, I didn't even couldn't follow the entire argument, and that's much of what led to. I mean, the presence of Freudianism and this notion of group narcissism. In other words, that you, you're narcissistic about how your group is perceived by the majority. And I think in one interpretation of this, which is the one that we were exposed with and, and discussed, a lot, of, a lot of the group belonging in the United States is Kaduhian group narcissism, which I think is partially true. I think it's definitely the case that, um, you know, let's just be blunt. People have ganged up on the, the the Latinx people, for example, right? Who, by the way, if you parachuted them in Latin America, would stick out as like a sore, a sore thumb as much as any like ugly Americans. They don't speak Spanish. They don't actually have elements of Hispanic culture. Why do they identify so much with this Latinx thing? Well, precisely those who, in fact, are more legitimately Latin Hispanic American don't have this group Marxism around it. This is where I think the, the theory blows up. The thought that any sort of group allegiance necessarily is an expression of narcissism, I don't, I don't actually agree with. And I think there is, speaking of narcissism, Kaduhi himself was actually born a Scotch, I think, Catholic, and clearly wanted to integrate with Protestant America. And so he rejected any, any group, outgroup that sort of didn't assimilate. I think if there's one thing you can look at the United States, right, that's different from 19th century Germany, is that you can live, for example, as a Jew in the United States and not feel self-conscious about it and not feel that you have to fit in with some, some, broader, some broader world, right? And so, and yeah, that's this group narcissism concept that I have some objections to. Yeah, I, I wonder um, how much... Uh, when people try to look at sociology and, and try to explain it with culture and with environment, they leave out the genetics and the, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so, you know, for example, like I think it's been proven that groups with um, a lot of uh, inbreeding 
are more uh, sort of in-group oriented um, and where they favor uh, people in the group, uh, they favor kinship a lot more. They are, um, and they're less universal. Whereas um, people who actually did not do a lot of inbreeding actually breeded widely with a lot of different groups uh, are, have less, put less on kinship and um, are, are, you know, perhaps like more universal in their views. You know, um, you know that's partly, I think, why white Europeans um, innovated this concept of liberalism and neoliberalism is because it is, it's actually a very weird you know, there's the, I think the, the book yeah. that's favorite on this podcast, weird. <laughs> um, it's a very weird thing to actually, um, uh, f- for a group to, fi- to, to be very obsessed with the success of other groups, um, you know, w- whether that actually resulted in, in good things or not. Um, it's besides the point, but the, uh, but, but I think these kind of explanations uh, are to me much more interesting than pure psychological speculation, uh, because at least there's some interesting logic uh, behind them. Which is why I initially, you know, was when I was ver- first introduced to Zihan, which you know we we criticize uh, a bunch the other day, but uh, uh, you know was attracted to some of these arguments because I think arguments with logic are much more interesting about explaining our world than sort of just so stories about, you know, psychology of, of a certain group, which nobody can actually provide any evidence for. I don't know. I, I, when I have more time, when I'm not working full time, I really want to go deep on this topic. But, um, I, I was recently reading, uh, this book called the restless Republic, which is a, like a snapshot of a 10 year period in England after they beheaded Charles the first and you know, the Commonwealth, Oliver Cromwell and the like crazy Protestants who are running around the country doing shit. I, I actually just think Protestantism uh, and I have to be careful. I, I think it's just like this crazy viral strain of Christianity that has just gone amok. And I mean, we've talked about it with, uh, you know, dominion and, and just, you know, I think Antonio last time we were talking about this, but I, I think Protestantism is just crazy, batch of crazy stuff that has that has pushed into the the Western mindset and kind of just keeps running. And it's it, you, people are worried about AGI, and it's like we already have Protestantism, and in terms of a a thing that we need to uh, figure out, how, what is a cultural force against that? Right? Is it Catholicism? Is it Islam? I don't know. Judaism. <clears throat> Yeah, that's, I think that's Judeo-Christianity is also on the bingo card, so I just wanted to get that one out of the way for those who are playing. Yeah. <laughs> Should we segue into Big yeah. Yud, into Doomerism? Okay, can I get a beer first? I, I Sorry, I'm going to have to self-medicate for this one. Also, it might spice things up. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> yeah, I just got a beer. Oh, man. That needs something harder than a beer. <laughs> one thing okay, I want to say. I'm ready for Big Yud, that- AGI, Doomerism, uh, EA, Polycules, the whole fucking thing. Yeah, let's 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 talk about religion for nerds and the Pope of the nerds. Let's talk about the Pope of the nerds. Well, I, actually, actually, that's an interesting segue from the problem of sort of underachieving men. Is that uh, <laughs> there's um, like I, I mean, like 
I don't mean it in an insulting yeah. way, but like I think a lot of a lot of um, fringe ideologies and cults and and things like that end up having those those kind of uh, men, um, like you know the four chans of the world. You know, for example, is a is a great example of that. Maybe it's not a cult, but they have a lot of uh, in group language. They have they created a certain ideology with a very sort of black and white view of the world um and you know uh and and i i um like i don't think that um rationalists are similar to, to 4chan but i do think they attract a similar kind of like dis disenfranchised person um to uh to a certain like worldview that's quite nihilistic and perhaps unrealistic. And, you know, that is not to say that their main philosophers or authors are totally uh, deranged or unrealistic. But, you know, for example, I'm like a huge fan of Nick Bostrom. Um, and, um, and a lot of people that are adjacent to that groups have produced amazing intellectual uh, output that I've read and I continue to read and I think very compelling. I think some uh, worry about some kind of AI alignment is warranted. Um, and um, in, in the same way that we worry about capitalism alignment, right? Any sort of large optimization force uh, that is hard to understand, like we talked about the second order problem of economics is incredibly hard to understand um, and just thinking through how do you align economics with the better benefit of humanity is a really good question. And that's a question of government and governance. And now we have a new optimization force, which is namely gradient descent uh, that produces AI. Um, and so for people who do not know, the way AI works is that it is uh, trained using a mathematical um, process that discovers algorithms like, just let me pause on that. It actually discovers algorithms. The way AI works is a machine learning training system that finds algorithms to do a certain function. So instead of software engineers sitting down and writing code, it is actually discovering that code. And it does so in a way where it discovers um, code that we, we could never write. It, it discovers algorithms that are superhuman in nature. Um, and, but it is a process that we don't fully understand because it it it's it relies on uh, amounts of data that no one one person could could read or consume. It relies on values and numbers and huge matrices matrices of values um, that we can't really interpret. So we can't read the code that is underlying those algorithms that the machine learning model has has uh, sort of discovered. Um, and, and so, yes, you have to worry about like, what is the outcome of these machine learning models? Um, but they make a huge leap and then they created a cult around it. And um, this cult has all aspects of cultishism and, uh, and, and, and they have a whole like end of world uh, scenario and they're 
they're very aggressive towards anyone who doesn't uh, view the world the way they view it. Be, they will call you a murderer and they will call you all sorts of names uh, if you uh, don't believe in their um, in their mountain of crap um, or don't believe fully in their mountain of crap. And um, and and so uh, and so you know not I, I wouldn't want to throw away the baby with with the water because I think they cre- created enormous intellectual output that I really respect and I think they they contributed something to the world. Uh, but at the same time, like it, it, you know, they they also created like a militant uh, group of uh, people that is probably not going to end well. So I think we agree, Amjad, that like the rationalist movement is a little bit of like a pseudo religion, and at some point you should mature and get past it. And a lot of people get stuck there in like the local the local minima, and then that's it, right? Is that Amjad? You actually had a good um, uh, quip in our in a group chat. You were saying there's been a progression from like the new atheists to social justice to effective altruists to AI safety. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So um, basically uh, new atheists were this movement that really picked up uh, post nine 11 where, you know, Sam Harris and a bunch of people like that start talking about the problem of Islam and how, um, like uh, religion is this dangerous force in the world. Um, and it, it sort of pattern matches a lot of the AI stuff in that um, it was like very intellectually interesting because Sam Harris is trying to sort of psychoanalyze and understand the incentives of people who believe in religion. Uh, it was also intellectually stimul- stimulating because you're engaging in this very uh, puzzle-like uh, debates and arguments where you know the new the atheists the the four, four horsemen of atheism Sam Sam Harris and um, and Daniel Dennett and uh, uh, Richard Dawkins they they would go around they debate people who are like fairly intellectual on the sort of Christian and uh, and sort of Muslim side and um, it, it is very entertaining to watch and they present a lot of logical arguments for the 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 presence of God and for um, for the lack thereof. And, um, and you know, I, I've watched a lot of this stuff and I'm actually like, I'm like a big fan of, um, of, uh, of, you know, some, some of their writings, uh, obviously earlier Richard Dawkins, the self of gene. Um, I also like that. British guy, I forgot his name, Christopher Hitchens and Christopher Hitchens was doing it for the sport. He liked to get drunk and just talk. But Sam Harris is actually like quite militant uh, atheist, and that mentality was uh, attracted a lot of sort of what we were calling, what we're talking about earlier, sort of disenfranchised men, people who did not have sort of any uh, life and didn't have anything to do, and they would go online and just argue forever and attack people, and they became like very um, anti. Uh, anyone who doesn't think like them. So uh, then for whatever reason, they ran out of steam. It became, it became passe. Uh, we, we were starting to see that pure atheistic uh, obsession also has problems. 
um, and uh, society overall, um, you know, pivoted back to potentially being more neutral on on religion. People stopped freaking about Islam um, and how Islam is like this uh, specially bad uh, religion that like causes people to go insane and, and kill people. Um, and um, and they they just like became boring, and so people uh, started migrating from atheism or new atheism to social justice. So you had the rise of the feminist blogs. You had the rise of all sorts of blogs talking about uh, using similar arguments to new atheism to talk about how society is is you know. Uh, very discriminated against one group or another, how there's like a dominant group, namely like straight white men and how they go around and dominate people and how everything in life is, um, is, is sort of biased against a certain group of people towards another group of people. And look, all these things, inc- including new atheism, they always start with some kernel of truth and they just become deranged over time. And they all share the same characteristic where they also become sort of insanely militant and they start attacking anyone who doesn't exactly believe like them. Now, we all know that social justice warriors kind of had their their like big um, peak in, in perhaps like 2013 to 2015. You could probably find it in Google Trends. These things kind of look like, look like bubbles. Um, and... Uh, and then for a while, like it was kind of quiet and we didn't have, uh, yeah, so exactly the bubble for like social justice or, uh, is November 2016. Um, what, and, what else um, happened in November and, 2016, that, that by happens the way? happens to be, you know, oh, no. <laughs> Trump, yeah, Trump uh, <laughs> got in office. Um, so... Um, so basically, you know that that starts to fade away. It becomes lame. It, you know, you you, pro- you don't have a lot of status uh, by doing that. Um, and the, and then you had the effective altruism movement uh, gain a lot of steam. So effective altruism also uses a lot of intellectual um, uh, sort of uh, arguments, and it is another thing that you could feel better than other people. So new atheists are better than other people because you're rational and you. Uh, you don't believe in God and you believe in humanity or pro-humanity, whatever arguments you want to explain to yourself as a good thing, better than anyone. Um, and then you had social justice and how you're like for the oppressed uh, and against the, the oppression. Um, and then EA was like uh, effective altruism from the name. I am like a better altruist uh, than anyone else. Uh, I know how to run the world and uh, to include, to maximize uh, utility. They're, they're utilitarian. Basically, they think that uh, there's a way to initially start it as a way to spend money, but there's a way to live your life that actually maximizes happiness uh, across the world. And, um, you know, Slater Stark Codex wrote this blog about the migration from new atheism to social justice. And he showed some real argument, some evidence showing that you know, some of the same people that went for, were militant new atheists became militant uh, feminists and social justice warriors. Uh, and I bet those same people became militant, uh, effective altruists. And now I think we're seeing another shift from the effective altruism to uh, AI safety and the idea that AI will kill the world. And it's also 
built on it, it, all these things share this thing where they they're very fun to think about. You can build a mountain of intellectual arguments that you can use to attack the op- op- opposing view and and feel better. Um, and my prediction is that AI safety over this decade is going to take the same uh, direction as social justice did, and and probably became become sort of a national uh, thing and 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 a, and a national. Yeah, one cult one thing I'll, I'll just mention on the new atheist. By the way, you glossed over Richard Dawkins' real claim to fame is that in Selfish Gene, he coined the term meme, actually, um, in a very different context than we typically use it. But the, idea, the, the original meaning for it there was like this atomic unit of meaning that would self-replicate through the genome that he used in like genetic patterns, which became what we know now. I think the, the other thing that's worth mentioning, right, is like the new atheists came at a time when, one, there was the external threat of Islam. So Sam, Sam Harris at the time got into a lot of trouble for the, you know, his, and also Hitchens for the God is not good, uh, sort of anti sort of Muslim side of what they're doing. But at the same time, remember, Protestant uh, evangelicals used to be a political force, right? So the, a lot of the presence of religion in American public life, which basically doesn't exist anymore, was back in the day when like what happened at the Southern Baptist Conference used to be a matter of national import because they would endorse one president or another. That, that's all gone away, but it was partially in, in response to that. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you're drawing a line between the new atheism and the social justice and the rationalism I definitely get it between the rationalism and, and the new atheism. Um, it, again, to me, it's all Protestantism in the, in the sense that it's this cr- crusading, millenarian, apocalypticist, improve the world thing about it. Um, well, Antonio, in the early days of uh, social justice, it was actually, it was like, I, I know that it ended up being in this very sort of irrationalist um, sort of insanity Um that doesn't even right. try to be rational, but in the early, very early days, they were actually trying to, you know, build sort of a rational edifice of, um, of you know how they, their worldview is is better than others, and they actually used a lot of the rationality type type argument. It sort of ended up morphing into wokeism, which is a totally different thing that also came from a different tradition. That is totally not rationalist tradition, which is the right. postmodernist type type tradition. Ended up merging together, and now they have like this new branch. But there there is a branch from new atheism through social justice to uh, to rationalist. Eric, when are we going to get an, uh, an EA, EA punching bag? Because I have like a whole anti EA screed raring to go, and we're just we just need the foil for that. When when is are we going to get Big Yud? Come on, Eric, your powers of persuasion can well, do it. Let's get Big Yud. <laughs> Well, let's tempt him. Why don't you give a, a preview oh, of your anti-EA screen? Um, I don't know if I want to bore can, everyone's uh, gonna go to sleep. I mean, it's just it's it's not necessarily EA. It's it's more EA to me is really a demographic that believes in utilitarianism and consequentialism, right? So my objections to EA are basically objections to utilitarianism, which is that well, so EA is a demo. It's bizarre. It's it's a it's a wealthy it's a Western wealthy person thing where it's like oh where do I like basically what sort of indulgence do I buy? <laughs> like, tell me, what do I buy? Is it mosquito nets or is it vaccinations? What do I buy to presumably increase value? And then sort of like, what restrictions do I put on myself in terms of carbon footprint or whatever? It, it, it really is a, a pseudo-religious movement. So, it, but let's just leave that aside in utilitarianism. What's wrong with it? What's the problem with ethics by Excel spreadsheet, right? Like, well, why can't you just add up the hedons, right? And the, the hedons and the dolors, I think was uh, Betham's original term for the 
sort of positive and the negative that you add up and that determines any public policy. Well, for starters, you can't actually measure these things necessarily, right? Like in the micro thing of like, oh, on that street corner, do I build a school or an office building or an apartment complex? Sure, of course you can trade off things in a very micro way, right? Like in a very microeconomic sort of way, what's, what's good. But the reality is for most, for most of the things that we actually spend time talking about as, as moral discourse, there is no math you can apply that gives you a concrete answer. The math doesn't actually necessarily work out. And even if it did, even if it did, the reality is that the math leads to many repugnant conclusions, which is a term of art inside ethics of like, what happens if you run the math in what seems like an absurd way, but it's like, well, but it's not absurd, right? If the math is in fact the moral philosopher and you can force the math to do crazy things, one of the classic examples is, well, wouldn't you prefer a world in which everyone has an iota of pleasure, but there's a trillion humans to the one where there's 7 billion humans, but it's a very mixed bag of pleasure versus pain. Wouldn't, wouldn't you prefer that world? A slightly more grotesque example is, hmm, why don't we take a newborn and take harvest them for organs and save half a dozen lives, right? If you're not doing it, you're basically killing six people. You can, you can set up all sorts of arrangements in which you, you get to these drastic things. It's like, well, come on, Antonio, but that's crazy. Like, well, what is crazy about it? I mean, the, the math works out. Why wouldn't you do it? The problem with Excel, ethics by Excel spreadsheet is that at some point you need the moral infinities that you put into the spreadsheet. Why don't you dice up the newborn and harvest them for organs? Well, ah, because uh, Judaism says that they have a Selim Elohim, they're made in the image of God, or Christianity says they're made in the image of God, or secular liberalism says, oh, they have human rights, which is just three different ways of saying the exact same thing, right? Which is humans are special somehow in God's creation, and we can't just rob them of life for the sake of some other, other human, even if the math works out, right? So where do you draw those moral infinities from? No, nothing in consequentialism, Mill, Bentham, they're not going to tell you what those moral infinities are, right? And that's, that's fundamentally the problem. Right. Like the whole SBF blow up. Finally, these EA people have finally shut the fuck up because you can see what the outcome of EA is in the, in the context of FTX and SBF, in which he's basically robbing people blind for $10 billion. But if he actually saved enough people, would it be worthwhile? That's one question we're not asking. Like, it, was that the calculus going on in SBF's head? And, and if so, was he wrong? What, what if he had gotten away with it? What if the crypto markets hadn't tanked in 2022 and he made a bunch of money and then he, I don't know, cured some disease in the world. Was it worth it? By the EA calculus, it would have been. But I think by most calculus, it would not have been. In fact, what's his name? McCaskill, the great guru of EA, actually tweeted, oh, no, but by the way, we need virtue ethics. Well, what virtues are you talking about, bro? They're not in the fucking spreadsheet. Why do I care about them, right? That's a fundamental problem, right? That's why utilitarianism unguided by deontology, deontology meaning a more rules-based system, is basically insane, right? And that's, that's, that's in a short version of my screen. Well, it's fascinating that, like, I, I sort of arrived at that, like, uh, you know, you know, very early in, you know, in my life, it, perhaps in my early twenties where, where I, uh, thought a little bit about utilitarianism and, um, and it was like, just, this doesn't make sense. Like you arrive at all these repugnant conclusions. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's some amount of utilitarianism as being outcomes oriented is good. Yeah. You want to be outcomes oriented. But you also want to have some rules. You want to have some principles. You want to have, uh, you know, you, you want to be virtuous. You want to, you can't always predict what what uh, could go wrong and what go well. So you want to rely on um, virtues to to be able to guide you in life. So that even if the outcome is not perfect, you can at least say I was principled and you 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 try to do the best thing possible. Uh, and this is like an age-old thing that people arrived at, and so I, I think a lot of the 
tinkering. What's really interesting is like these people are saying that if we don't listen to them, the world is going to end, basically, right? Um, if we don't listen to what they're saying, the world's going to end. Um, I actually think that if we listen to them, the world is going to end. Because I think utilitarianism, in the same way that they're arguing that unaligned AI could, could, could end the world, unaligned utilitarianism could end the world. Because they, they, some error in their spreadsheet uh, and will, will actually uh, just cause uh, massive damage or some error in the, their prediction of the consequences because you don't have complete information, right? Uh, and I'm sure there's a blog post somewhere on there like uh, <laughs> talking about how this argument or, or whatever, but ultimately like the uh, totality of utilitarianism is, will result in massive damage. Uh, SBF is just like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you can you can justify anything uh, with pure utilitarianism. You can just literally justify anything, especially uh, if you have a, a potential for infinite utility or infinite disutility. Or like you know, if humanity goes to zero, that's really bad, right? Because not only you are killing a lot of people, causing a lot of disutility, you, the opportunity cost of infinite utility in the future because you can invent utopia. If you align, so, so it's like if you align AGI, it's infinite positive utility. If you disalign AGI, it's infinite negative utility. Um, and 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 you know, in a scenario like this, um, you end up being fairly irrational because you can't discount uh, infinity. So you want to apply some discounting on probabilities or some future event, but any discount you apply to infinity, you're still with infinity. So this is a problem called Pascal's mugging. So Pascal, uh, we all know Pascal's wager, right? Um, you know, it doesn't cost you much to believe in God. Therefore, you should believe in God on the off chance yeah. that God actually exists, right? Um, but there is another thing where uh, if you apply this argument uniformly, let's say someone came to you on the street and said, I am God, give me all your money, all your burn in hell. Uh, any rational being uh, would not assign a value percentage uh, that is zero to, to this person being God. You can never be zero. That's you know, basic Bayesianism. Um, so you assign it 0.0000001% that this person is God. But- 0.00001% of infinity because that's infinite disutility or infinite utility, uh, it's still infinity. So um, the rational thing to do there is to give that person all your money and ask for forgiveness uh, because they're, they're potentially going to cause you infinite amount of harm. So any situation you set up where there's infinity, you end up Pascal mugged. And I think a lot of these people are Pascal mugged. And and we are, whether it's climate, whether it's COVID, we are so sensitive to existential arguments that, that you know, we, we, we go but, along with But that. it's, I feel like it's all just, these are luxury belief systems living in the American empire where you don't deal, you're not in Ukraine dealing with a real war or, or any version of, of reality. 
like you get to fight on Twitter all day about like kind of like your belief system. And like, I I just, it's like gut bacteria. Like it can exist inside the, the like kind of nice confines of a well-fed human. But as soon as you get out of that, it just dies. Like, are there any cultures at any scale around the world that are even close to this type of belief system? Like you go to China is like EA, like a thing. Well, because uh, they're not Christian. This is all Christian residue at the end of the day. That's why when Christian societies get into a social panic. No, when Trump gets elected in November 2016, what do they whip up? A millenarian fervor in which the world is ending. There's some great Christ figure and we must either, you know, repent and be saved. That is a reflex to every great crisis. And this, this is just this is the same Christian mythos, but just cast with. Yud of all people instead of Jesus. I mean, it, it, it really is like that. But that's the point. Does this happen in post-Christian societies? No, it doesn't. Right. That's the point. That's the moral narrative of our society. And you see it again and again and again and again. I know I say this again, but it's like the goldfish. Right. Par- it's like the goldfish parable. Exactly. It's like, hey, boys, how's the right. water? And it, it's like, what the hell is water? It's like, <laughs> like, this is all fucking water. And it's just another version. And then, of the, it. then the objection to this, like the anti woke, the neo reactionary, the new right, all, all these fuckers on, online, oh, they all devolve into the Nietzschean protests of Christianity. It's all paganism, the strong man, BAP, all that bullshit. It's all the same garbage. But none of them actually live that pagan reality. And even if they did, it always ends in despotism and horror. I mean, look at the Holocaust, for God's sake. I mean, that, that's the reality. It's like overweening Christianity that goes off the rails and then like the pagan revolt. And that's that's it. That's the story. Maybe you should just stop. All fought on right. Twitter. Everything yeah. fought on Twitter. What's what's I, I have no idea. It's it's a it's a it's an it's an ad tech term that refers to a business model inside media. Is what it is. Um, maybe we should just Eric. Why don't you define it for yeah. our audience since uh, you you flagged it? Uh, BAP is uh, I've heard according to according to the kids stands for uh, Bronze Age pervert which is a, um, a pseudonym of a PhD, uh, of a Yale philosopher, PhD um, graduate who was a Nietzsche scholar and um, has written a very popular book uh, among the new right called Bronze Age Mindset, which is um, kind of very impressionistic. If, if, if you read it, you will feel like it's written in a different era, like hundreds of years ago. And it's very subversive, um, and it has inspired a generation of young men, in particular, or new right men, who are who see in BAP a kind of vitality that does not exist. Dude, you're in, definitely in the pumping the guy. I gotta say, how, how would you <laughs> you're, you're definitely selling this dude. Okay, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be objective about it. He also is racist and sexist. Uh, so I, I don't know. Did I, is that enough disclaimers? <laughs> How would you characterize? I, I just, I, I find the whole like post-liberal right. It's like, you know, like the argument might be a lot stronger if you yourself are not actually a fucking soy boy living on like the Upper East Side of New York or Palm Beach or whatever. Like if you're at Bronze Age mindset, great. Go live the fucking Bronze Age lifestyle and then write back to me, right? Like they're not living it. It's completely a fucking LARP, but whatever. Yeah. We're probably going to get hate mail now from the bad fans, but it just begs the question: like, what to do if you if you're not going to be Christian? Ah, and you're oh, not I have a solution. Like, just stop reading the Bible you... until you get right before the Gospels. Just don't just don't read the New Testament. That just stop right there at the end of the Old Testament. That's that's my solution. The middle ground. But Jews are trying to keep people out, or it's so hard to well, <laughs> become a Jew. No comment. <laughs> speaking of which, oh, speaking of which, can In I just Miami? Plug? I'm finally. 
finalizing it. The mikvah, the dunk, the ritual, the circumcision, the whole business is finally happening April 26th. Um, you'll find this funny. No, no, no. In Austin, I'm timing it with a crypto conference consensus. I'm going to go hang out with the crypto bros. And then we're going to get a little prick. There'll be a little blood, a little bit mikvah, a little Judaism, and boom. We're, 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 we're killing two very different birds with the same stone. Uh, April 26th in Austin, Texas. Let's let's get this on camera. This should be we should film. Including the circumcision. By the way, so this is well. Let's not go with too many details. Some people do it themselves. The really metal oh. way of doing it is doing it yourself. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please, Jesus Christ! Let's move to a new topic. Everyone just cringes at once. <laughs> I'll report back. I'll report back to our to our moment of Zen listeners. Can I, can I? Yeah. Um, Ask a question. Why do we think EA is so popular in Silicon Valley? Maybe that's a mid question, but I think maybe for for the audience, it would be a good attempt at like, wh why is Dustin Moskovitz and Sam Bankman Fried and all these folks in Silicon Valley? Because it it feels like it's it's centered in the Bay Area more than anywhere else, right? I mean, I mean, look, there there, there are positive aspects, uh, and maybe that's what like Moskovitz was initially interested in is they actually built a uh, um, a site. That shows you the best, um, the most effective nonprofits to donate to, which is like a good thing. Like they, you could, but you could stop there and could have have done the world a very positive thing, right? Um, and and it, it is it is compelling to, you know, say that we can run some numbers and be able to use money in a very effective way, and of course, startup founders and people who are interested in doing good and in not actually wasting money and spending it on corruption because a lot of nonprofits are corruption um, got attracted to this idea but then it sort of becomes a slippery slope because the the reason they arrived at these ideas is uh, because of their utilitarian ideology and then you start reading about utilitarianism and how they do it um, and I think for a lot of people that are technical, tech-oriented, will be convinced that they found the solution to ethics, uh, which is a, a very sort of interesting claim and a very a, a thing that will uh, be like you're know, very interesting for people. Like it, to, to tell someone that I found the solution for ethics. Um, and you don't have to have these ethical dilemmas anytime you try to do something right. You can just, you know, calculate it. Uh, it's actually like a very, very interesting thing. But also you add in the community, you add in um, the potential mating pool that you can have access to, especially if you're, like we said, disenfranchised and typically don't have access to a mating pool. Um, yeah, the friendship, all that stuff, and people will just buy in it uh, completely. Yeah, it's attractive because it's a high IQ nerd trap of how do you make the biggest difference in the world, right? Um, how, how do you make the biggest impact? And then also it's, um, uh, you know, you get to show how good of a person you are too. Um, and so it attracts men and women. Um, and though, and also, um, yeah, to Amjad's point, the steel man of EA is that most of philanthropy is totally emotionally driven. Or, and or special interest driven or corrupt. And EA has introduced frameworks to how to be systematic, 
about philanthropy in the same way that we're systematic about allocating capital into uh, startups, for example. Oh, here's but here's my criticism of EA. They're actually not mathematical, right? They're they're not deriving moral conclusion from math. They're wrapping math around moral conclusions. Again, like, like I'm almost not criticizing EA people for being EA people. I'm saying they're not being EA maxi enough. Like, if they really are EA people, then fine, fucking you know, cut apart the fucking newborn and harvest their organs. I don't know, create the snuff film that actually pleases billions of people but costs the life of one person. Do the goddamn math already, right? If you're really going to do it, do it. None of them actually do it, right, is the reality of it. And it's, <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking how the math always works out to actually support the average midwit liberal Democrats' views. Like, what, what has come out of EA that is like, oh, my God, moral shocker. We couldn't have seen this coming from secular liberalism, right? Somehow the math always works out to support what is pretty normy, like, mid- techno-libertarian, like, Democratic Party beliefs. How, it's amazing. Amazing how the math just works out that way, right? That's why. It's like, it's 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 not actually very bright or interesting or quantitative or anything, in my opinion. Well, because EA is not very disagreeable. Uh, EA is very agreeable I think it's disagreable. It's, it's just, very, it's not, uh, it doesn't really go there, right? Like, if you, if you, again, if you're really an EA maxi, you'd go to places that they obviously don't go. Right. What has been the um, biggest accomplishment from EA outside of the website that rates charities? Um, spreading veganism, perhaps, because the one of the founders of EA is this. Uh, no, I'm not joking. Is this uh, Australian guy who wrote a b- book about veganism? Peter Singer. Um, I forgot his name. Uh, he's like Peter a, Singer. What's that? The Australian philosopher. Yeah, yeah, okay. Peter Singer. Yeah. Who, who by the way, <laughs> just what? Yeah, so yeah. he's one of the. But just to be clear, uh, yeah. his notion of his notion of of moral dignity is kind of based on IQ, and his supposition was that a sufficiently, you know, mentally disabled human should be rated less than non-humans potentially, right? Um, and I think that yeah, he'll probably get canceled by them pretty soon because Bostrom got canceled. Let's actually talk about that, Eric. You posted the Richard Ananya's article about how wokeism is eating. Yeah, inside out. What was the main arguments there? Hold on. Let me put it up really quick. So it's, what's wild to me is how, how much coverage it gets relative. I mean, in SBF notwithstanding, like what, what have they actually done? Well, so let me tell you why. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you their impact. And uh, maybe we can get back to the Richard blog. But um, they're actually very important now. They're super important. Because... Um, you know, Sam Altman recently tweeted as a lot of us got into AI by reading Eliezer Yudkowsky. So the people that are working on AI across the biggest labs, OpenAI and Anthropic and all these people, got into AI inspired by uh, sort of effective altruist literature. Um, and a lot of these people are in big positions uh, and a lot of uh, AI companies now. And actually a lot of EA groups were recommending people to go work at these labs. Of course, now Eliezer Yudkowsky is has been speaking up, up against OpenAI and others because they, they're not following his recommendations. But in essence, the uh, EA movement was a recruiting uh, arm of big tech AI for a long time. Um, And a a lot of them got off the sort of uh, militant 
uh, AI safetyism um, view. Um, and they got convinced that actually we can build AI while also making sure it's positive for humanity. But a lot of the and making a bunch of money. Exactly. I mean, that's that also makes a big difference because a lot of those people got into big companies and started making a lot of money. And then when you make a lot of money, you don't need to be part of a like a loser group. But 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 they're still they're still super influential. Like the you know, they're now like trying to influence how AI develops. So they're uh, promoting now ideas on how to restrict chip manufacturing in AI and how to regulate uh, chip manufacturing and how to regulate like GPUs and all of that. Uh, they, they're really trying to centralize the development in a, of AI into the hands of the few so that they can control it to make it safe for everyone. And what they're, if they're successful, they're going to invite a lot of AI regulation. Governments love, 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 love to find a fringe group with some scribbles that people like, that some people like. And then if it benefits government and increased centralization, they will actually adopt it. So, you know, it's not out of the question that someone like Eliezer will be employed by the government uh, in the future to ensure the safety of AI and perhaps given a lot of money and a lot of uh, power. Um, and so now when AI is going to disrupt big parts of our world and the government starts waking up to this, um, these people will become more and more influential and that's why it's important to pay attention to them. And um, the important thing is to continue to to build and and develop and make the world better and um, make, you know uh, accelerate technology. Um, and yes, you want to pay attention to um, to some form of alignment. Although I, I hate this word, but some form of making sure that we understand the technology that we're building and how it's going to affect us. Uh, but you should not centralize. You should not block. You should not over-regulate. It's too early to regulate anything in AI or software in general. Uh, and it's just going to make it go somewhere else like China or Russia. Do you have any more on that? Like for people who are like, yeah, but how do we actually align or think about alignment? Is, is there more you would say of like, if, if you were the head of trying to align or, you know, guide all the alignment researchers, like what should they actually focus on? There are, there are people that are offshoots of, of the core Milton group that are actually fairly reasonable. There's a guy called Paul Cristiano. I think that that seems like a reasonable guy. Um, a lot of people on at OpenAI's team are, um, are probably reasonable on this stuff. Um, and, uh, and so th th there are reasonable people that, care about this um and look i i think even the milton group will continue to produce a good intellectual output but they're they're really unaligned someone needs to align them um and and i think that there's a risk for them to become rogue um just because they're the problem of infinity the problem of pascal's mugging right um it's easy for them to 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 really justify 
abhorrent actions. Um, so I think if, if someone wants to learn about uh, alignment in, in a reasonable way, uh, you can actually just read research. Anthropic is putting out really interesting research um, on, uh, you know, they, they wrote this article called uh, on constitutional AI, where um, it's a really neat trick where you give the AI like a constitution, uh, and then you start, you have another AI that's like rating its execution on that con- constitution. And then that rating feeds into its training. Uh, and so it becomes increasingly more aligned with the constitution that you wrote for it. So we were talking about how new atheism evolved into social justice. What, what happened was that there was a camp, you know, new atheism started pretty alpha, right? Like you look at Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, um, like these were not woke people. Uh, but what happened was that there was a core within atheism called atheism plus that was like, Hey, we're going to have no God, but we need to have, we're going to be anti-religion, but we need to be pro something. And that atheism plus morphed into social justice. Similarly, uh, you know, effective altruism, you think people like Yud, people like Robin Hanson, these are not woke people. Um, and yet now when people talk about alignment, a lot of them are actually talking about wokeness or AI safety. Like a lot of talk, talk. And so how do these movements get um, kind of, you know, become woke? And there's this, this is what Richard's post is, is on, is the idea that EA is at a uh, fork in the road moment. They have to pick. You can either be woke or anti-woke. And EA has been trying to be in between, but you, you can't. And there's this uh, law called Robert Conquest's Second Law, which says that every organization will either be uh, explicitly right-wing or uh, it will turn into a left-wing one or vice versa works. Basically, the reason why- What's that law? Uh, Robert, basically, the reason why you can't go centrist is because if you go centrist, uh, you'll, you, you have a choice. Woke people are going to come to your organization and they're going to try to, uh, you know, encourage, like, make you live by woke principles. And if you re- accept them, then you're woke. And if you reject them, then you're anti-woke. And so you could try to stay centrist, uh, maybe in your own minds, but in terms of your organization, it's either going to be one or the other if it achieves any sort of scale or impact. And he was saying that EA has started to achieve that scale and impact and, um, you know, is, is, is likely going to be part of the Democratic Party unless it takes a, a you know, a, a very deliberate decision to uh, to be against it. And what's interesting is that EA's personality type, is, in my opinion, is not as not as disagreeable. Um, and so it, it is interesting. You notice there are like personality types that are drawn to different types of movements, right? Like we were talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum in a previous podcast, right? Like um, you can look at you can look at a person. And see, like, are they more likely to be an Ethereum fan or a Bitcoin fan? Like, and uh, you could look at Slate Star, you know, uh, Scott Aronson or Slate Star Codec, and and um, the Bitcoin community or the libertarian community is just way more disagreeable, way more aggressive, way more, uh, you know, contrarian by nature. Like, you could, you could now Keith Boy is not into crypto, but if he was, he'd be a Bitcoiner, right? Like, you, you could just tell. Um, and so uh, EA happens to draw this kind of more subdued, passive, um, or not as, you know, not as disagreeable type person. Do you think there's an, int- there's like an entryism angle here? So entryism is this idea, um, where some communists pretty explicitly would go into, uh, groups and turn them communists. So a group that is like, has nothing to do with communism 
would actually like infiltrate some kind of group and start agitating and like turning out constant communists. And, you know, you saw that a lot in Silicon Valley companies where you, you would have like a fairly uh, functioning company and then just a few people will just start agitating and uh, creating activism and doing things like that and really derail the company. Um, there isn't like a central sort of, unlike with communism where, I don't know, Trotsky or something or Lenin would say like, go, you know, enter this group. Um, I don't think there's there's anyone saying that, but actually, perhaps is there is there like a concerned effort to enter group by leftists to turn them more left? I, I think it's much more organic, much much more bottoms up. Uh, I think someone had once had a post. Uh, we'll, we'll try to put it here that like um, it's a it's a strategy to rise up. I mean, it, it's uh, within an organization and to gain. You know, it's it's a way to bring people together and elevate your your own stature. Um, get more responsibility, uh, be seen as an ally in the organization. So I, I think it's largely a um, sort of byproduct of an individual, uh, you know, career optimization sh- short term. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's it's another example of the situation of like how is it that every institution in society ended up with the same narrow set of beliefs? Why would EA be any different at the end of the day? If you believe in the slippery slope argument of increasing dignity and justice for everyone, that like Christianity set into motion and now secular liberalism is continuing, why, why would EA be any different? Unless they literally dug in their heels per conquest second law and said, ah, we're going in a different direction. We're doing something else, which they're not going to do. And so that, that's, they're just going to follow like a, they're going to fall like a domino like every other institution in society, right? I think that's the, that's the Richard argument. I, I find it interesting how, with with modern politics, where basically we always we always say that whatever uh, threat or whatever thing that we happen like most of the time we talk about how it it is organic and decentralized, but when you read history, it is mostly concerted efforts uh, of of certain people to do certain things. Is it true that like modernity is just there's a lot of just decentralized emergence? properties of politics or 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 we just don't know yet the level of coordination that might be happening i don't know the protocols of the elders of woke <laughs> they gather together in underground room but yeah. it is interesting I, I think there is a bottoms up phenomenon but there's it, there's also support from the and not i don't mean in a like secretive consp- I, I think they're open about it um i don't know i think like um Biology has actually talked a little bit about this. If you actually go look at the literature, especially from the 60s, you have what is like Saul Linsky and like rules for, yeah, rules for radicals. And, and there's actually a whole playbook of, of community organizing and, and kind of like, this is how you actually go do it. And uh, to your point, Anjad, like there's actually a pretty long history in the U.S. of, of basically more or less some version of the American Communist Party uh, in different uh, versions at the student level, at, at the kind of, uh, you know, labor union oriented level. And you can actually trace that all the way back to abolitionists. Um, like th- there's like a continuous line between abolitionists and and kind of like, I don't know, Barack Obama communi- community organizing in Chicago. Um, but but as, as it relates to EA, I, I, do, are they at a fork in the road? Like, I don't actually, I mean, they're already part of the Democratic Party, right? Like FTX... And, and and you know Dustin Moskovitz spent a ton of money. Like, who who's a who's a right wing person 
within the EA movement. Is, is that even a thing? Richard Hanson. Robin Hanson. <laughs> yeah. Well, R Richard yeah, is doing Hansen. wishful thinking. Rich, Rich. So does Richard self-identify as EA or is he saying... He self-identifies as a right-wing rationalist. And we, we should we should have him on this podcast and, and talk about it. But th that that is kind of a movement that he's hoping to help support. But, but would people in EA, like the people who, you know, kind of are very much identified with EA, would they think Richard is part of their group? Mm. <laughs> no. So, so basically he's, he's borrowing from some ideas, but he's, he's created a completely different belief set. It's not like he was part of it and then is now split off. I think people would say that, uh, you know, he is in the, he's not that different from Robin Hanson, who is EA. But is Robin Hanson in the in like the core EA group, or is he again a little bit off on the side? Because I I think of Robin Hanson as an extremely disagreeable person just from his internet personality. I don't think if he he ever has like made it publicly clear that he's part of uh, effective altruism. Oh, sorry, I went uh, dark here. <laughs> Looks um, like you're gonna tell us a ghost story. <laughs> Ghost Rider, there you go. Replit, uh, you know, pitch. That's our bingo card. Yeah, we card. have to pitch Replit every time uh, I'm just on to make it worth his time. Use Replit. <laughs> Do bounties. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think Robin Hanson ever sort of made that clear, but but I think it's, it's sort of like um, there's like a cluster of of different uh, groups. There's the, you know, the sort of libertarian ish. Um, you know, Brian Kaplan, Robin Hanson, all these people were, you know, would go to these rationalist blogs and would argue with them and would go into debates with them. But I don't think you're right. I don't think he is uh, one of those groups. So uh, perhaps actually there isn't a right wing uh, rationalist or EA. Well, I will say one note I just want to say is Brian Kaplan's latest book is called Don't Be a Feminist. And he doesn't seem to be canceled for it. Like it, it feels like it, that of course is outside of the Overton window, you know, a few years ago, but um, it's kind of, I think just ignored. Yeah. But it's like all the Mercatus center guys are just, they're, they're already out there. No one, they're funded by the Cokes. Like they've already kind of been canceled by, by association. Tyler's the only one who can kind of seem to sprinkle across the oh, so Brian the Kaplan's like from there but the, he's like the Marilyn Manson of the right like he's always trying to get canceled he's like he's trying to get more and more outrageous right like who knows what the next book's going to be but like he's basically yeah yeah maybe Eric maybe oh, yeah. maybe explain the Mercatus Center for people who don't know because I think it's important I actually don't know how to explain the Mercatus Center it's an outgrowth of, of GMU it's like an independent research organization with GMU economists or Dan I, funded yeah. funded by the coach right like they they specifically wanted to create a prestige right wing academic institution, and Tyler Cowen and a whole bunch of other folks, you know, Robin Hanson, Brian Kaplan, Brian Kaplan, Arnold, Arnold, uh, but like Jerry Brito in the crypto world, like there are some like really really talented people who have been associated with it, um, but I I don't think it's taken credibly by the cathedral, like you know, well. They, they, they're, they're like popular in the blogosphere, right? It's like Tyler has the term state capacity. People use it like Ezra Klein, Noah Smith, who was on the podcast last week. We'll talk about it and, and entertain, but like, there's no impact at the, the kind of mainstream policy level or anything like that. I, at least in my, my point of view, I, I, and I'm a marginal revolution. I read Tyler's blog every day. It's like 
for, for the last 15 years. One thing that's interesting, I, I just was talking to Joe Lonsdale and Joe Lonsdale's new bit is that uh, too many people focus on culture and not enough on governance. And he thinks that the way to fight wokeness is not on Twitter, but in um, via changing institutions, just introducing more accountability, more effective. This is a broad question is, is politics downstream from culture or, or, or vice versa? And um, it's, 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 I'm, I'm curious if, if folks here have a, have an opinion. Some people think that that seems obviously wrong. Yeah. I just, yeah. I mean, Joe, I, Joe's I mean, a smart guy, but like what, what, what institution are you going to change with University better, of Austin, better governance? Which he backed, for example. I mean, he, that's the thing, right? He's actually trying to create new institutions that are more centrist or whatever. That's his deal. Right. Well, but they, a new institution, you can, you can work on that. You can't reform the right. existing institution. So the other thing is that that's basically what the non-left, let's say the non-woke or the you know center, uh, anyone to the right of extreme left has been trying to do uh, for a really long long time. And um, you, have, you have to remember that the reason you know politics is downstream from culture became sort of such a big meme is because Breitbart said it like before he he died who started the Breitbart magazine um and um and it created uh a bit of a revolution uh and sort of right-wing politics because for the first time uh people on the right started paying attention to the culture wars because they've been losing the culture wars for so long um and they, they're starting to win like i mean the uh, Trump was a big uh, win for them. The Supreme Court is a huge win. Like what happened with uh, Roe v. Wade is a huge win for them. And Chris Rufo and those gang and tic- libs of TikTok and all these people are starting to to gain some wins. Um, so I actually think that uh, if if they want to win some more, uh, I'm not saying everything they do is is actually I agree with them more centrist and moderate, but I, I think that it's been extremely effective for the right to take a culture uh, view of politics. It's going to be interesting to see if um, so. Tech is famously left. We had we, we had Noah Smith on the podcast last week, and he said that tech is getting less progressive. But the real question is: Are the is is there going to be a, a tech sphere that supports whatever right-wing candidate whether it's DeSantis it certainly won't be Trump impossible no impossible I I, I slightly disagree in the sense that I don't think you can have let me let me let me pause I actually lost my train of thought so we got that you 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 disagree with the sort of culture comment culture yeah let me say so I disagree on the cultural stuff because I don't think that that fundamentally changes the the structure of society to get like some critical race theory school board law passed. And I don't think libs of TikTok or whatever kind of win on Twitter is actually changing the culture because I think it, it, it approaches it from like a zero sum, like we have to fight over what's here. And not to kind of like be a Mark stand with build, but I, but I think this idea and, and 
to be fair, like there are some on the left who actually are talking about this idea of abundance mentality. But like, I, I feel like the the city on a shining hill is what like anybody should be trying to pitch is like, what is the better alternative rather than we need to, to like help this crumbling society and fight over the ruins of the empire. It's like, no, no, no. What are we actually building that's new that people are excited about? And I don't know, maybe, maybe I sound naive and stupid, but like, that's why I always get excited about like something like SpaceX, because it's like actually trying to push things forward in a way that, I don't know, seems like we should be trying to, to so I, I, I don't disagree. on another planet or whatever. I don't disagree, but the, the comment was more, uh, they've become more effective than they have been for the past 40 years. Right. Um, and you know, like libs of TikTok does make huge impact. Like, uh, you know, it freaked out parents in Florida and they went and they passed something against uh, CRT. Like they, they're actually getting things done, uh, not just on Twitter, but they're changing the culture somehow and it's resulting in some policy changes. And um, and they're actually like, I, I, I think Elon would not have bought Twitter if he was not starting to get exposed to these uh, ideas um, and was just starting to realize like how tilted, how much there's thumb on the scale, as he put it. Um, and so you, you end up moving a lot of very powerful people that end up sort of changing things, um, which is like why I was saying it's important to pay attention to the rationalist community because they have the ear of a lot of powerful people, you know, including SBF, late SBF, but, you know, a bunch of founders that like made billions of dollars are like pouring a ton of money there and they're listening to them. Actually, they, they almost infiltrated Elon's circle. Um, and there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about someone from EA getting into Elon's uh, inner circle and he almost got Elon to donate $6 billion to like some EA cause. Uh, and then at some point, Elon just, uh, and, and they, they did in interviews with people close to Elon saying that how, um, how uh, that person or that group really tried to influence Elon and he was captivated by it for a little bit. Um, and and it, that's my comment also on sort of like entryism as well, because I think um, I think I think they're going to start doing these tactics of sort of entryism and, and all that things but you know they're successful because um they're, they're also fighting a, a sort of a cultural war where they're producing media blog posts videos um tweets and things like that so i think i think that's really the the arena and if you're not in the arena you're no one uh you nobody will listen to you you can go build whatever fucking university you want to build no, no nobody cares about university of austin okay. Well, but, but, but I've never heard of right, it. Right. But I, I would argue uh, that nobody cares about what happens in Florida either. Right. Like the, the, the victories you're citing are actually not cultural victories or electoral victories in red states. Right. So there I agree. They, there's been some progress. But do you think among elite institutions, there's been a cultural change to the right recently? Um, I don't think so. But the the. Uh, I mean, I mean, the the the, bi the biggest win, the most elite institution in the country, is the Supreme Court, mm. which is yeah. There's been a huge shift to to the right, not by changing opinions, but by actually putting people in in that place. I don't, I'm a cynical. I, I don't think the, I don't think the woke tide is ultimately going to recede. 
I mean, I, I, it does seem like the New York Times, for example, issued a piece on J.K. Rowling and the trans thing that was like a missive from like Pravda during the Soviet. Like, oh, this is the new party line from the common turn. That's what we have to say. So, but. Well, well I'm not saying like I'm not saying they're fully winning. I'm just saying they're winning more than 2010 yeah, or more than 2020. Right? Well, but right? just yeah, <laughs> more than. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but if you're if you're already in last place <laughs> and now you you want to yeah like a ten game winning streak you're you're in still like third to last place ten like percent week over week. <laughs> so what what is the the next Pareto optimal jump that they can that they can make? Vivek Ramaswamy for president. <laughs> no, no, I, I I think like you you need to you need to have like a, a better alternative. Like you need to be pitching people on like this buy this. Like this is the life you actually want, not fighting over whatever we have now and and the problems we have now. So it's, it's got to be, I think, a pretty radical shift, right? It's like we have fentanyl in this country. We're going to have a zero tolerance policy for fentanyl, and any any country that is supplying us with fentanyl, we are going to take the. Tom, we're was, going to declare war. On that it. was Tom Clancy's last good novel, like, by the that way. That level of danger in which he declared war on the cartels. Yeah. Right, but like we're we're fighting over all these like issues that don't matter, and then there are people strung out on the streets of San Francisco, overdosing, more deaths from fentanyl than COVID. Like, who who's actually taking that stuff seriously? Instead, it just feels like everyone's fighting over like these these meaningless. You know, Twitter battles. Well, that, that's what Joe's saying, by the way. He's trying to address, you know, homelessness. He's trying to right. Joe, Joe moved to Texas, though. Joe didn't stay in 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 San Francisco to to win there. And and I admire the the fact that he's building a new institution, and I think he's super involved in in trying to change things in Texas. So, like, it's not the effort that I'm pushing on. It's it's like we're we're giving up on on basically the the greatest source of economic growth in the United States. I don't I don't know how long, right? on California because like, oh, you know, the supervisors in San Francisco are really in, in you know, entrenched and they, they can win. It's like, wh- why isn't there like a groundswell of people selling something different? So get Gary Tan, uh, the current president of YC, uh, made a huge difference in San Francisco politics, mostly fighting on Twitter. Started with Twitter. Right. But he, put he real funds and did real organizing. Yeah. Look, you're talking to a guy building, building a, a Twitter. I, like, I know it's important, but, but like my point is, is like, why don't we have a hundred more Garys? Because nobody cares. Because like, he's you know probably post-economic. He he doesn't care about getting canceled. He has like a will standing in the sort of Silicon Valley community. He has a story that is compelling. He, poor immigrants uh, pull yourself pull himself off the bootstraps, and like the 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 sample size at that point is like very well no hold on I mean, that's not true small. you've described literally every silicon valley billionaire <laughs> i mean or every silicon valley influential person is post-economic is probably the son of an immigrant and x y and z like i'm not gonna i'm not I, i'm not I'm I'm that also you like but I'm right like I, I, i'm not gonna let the techies off so easy next I, week I, I agree with dan they're like how the, i've always i think i've said probably said this before how the fuck is it that the scene of the biggest legal wealth creation in human history right is run in elections that are lost by 10,000 votes whose campaign budgets are $50,000, right? Like nothing. Like at some point it's on techie. So like, fuck you. Like, guess what? Petroleum executives don't get treated this way in Houston. Wall Street executives don't get treated this way in New York. If you're being kicked around like a little bitch by incompetence, then something is wrong with you and you should have done something about it. And it's great that Gary is doing it. But I think techies haven't done that. Why? 
It's because it would it because because it would require the full ugliness of human society of kissing babies, of shaking hands, of pressing the flesh, of presenting a pitch that appeals to more than a very limited set of nerds. All these things that nobody is willing to do. The other thing I would willing to say, yeah, ethics by Excel spreadsheet. Right. <laughs> Well, what about money? Like you bring up a good point. Why aren't the uh, you know center right billionaires like uh, David Sachs is a little bit? I think that's been public that he's he's funded some of these efforts a little bit. Um, yeah, I think the other thing, by the way, and I think this is important. Uh, Lonsdale had an essay recently about rebuilding the frontier society, right? And for those who aren't familiar with the frontier, there was uh, I forget the name of the writer. Um, the frontier in the American psyche was a famous uh, essay about 19th century America, in which the notion of there being a frontier was key to the American sort of self-conception. And at some point in the 60s, we said the frontier is over. We're not we're not a frontier society anymore. We worry about AI safety. Can you imagine imagine worrying about frontier safety right in the 1860s? They would have laughed in your face. It's like get on that damn you know prairie schooner, and if your kids die in the way, you bury them, and off you go to California. Right? We became different as a society. Right? And I think part of the problem with techies is they're very good at operating at frontier. Tiers, they're not very good at maintaining or fixing things, right? I, I think that's broadly true in the United States, by the way. And I think part of the bingo card is me also pumping Europe, right? So here's where I'm pumping Europe. They're much better at maintaining things, right? And the US isn't very good at maintaining or fixing things. It's good at building new stuff and operating at the frontiers. And it just so happens that that's it. Like, like the frontier, like the end of the, the Pacific is three miles away from where I'm sitting right now. We've gotten to the end of the frontier and we haven't created a new one. Dan said he was excited by SpaceX. You've created a new frontier, which is space exploration. But unfortunately, it doesn't appeal to that many people, and it's super fucking expensive. So how do we recreate that frontier society other than in software, which is inspiring to a few? I, I don't know. But I think that's the fundamental problem. Or Americans have to get, get a lot better at maintaining things. But I don't know if... Like you know, the like most of the like the deserts in the United yep. States are uninhabited. Like most of the United States are is uninhabited. Yeah, they're not net new... Uh, land, but like there, there are like a lot of places that you can you can just start building up. But but you don't. And, and there's, still, there's a Mediterranean weather monopoly. Yeah. It's a blue state. So if you split if you split California into multiple states and add some economic competition, I actually think you'd get a bunch of stuff. So Tim Draper's idea of splitting it to twelve, maybe why don't we just start with two? But but the other thing is like just think of like Richard Daly, right? Just like imagine him looking at how San Francisco is run and just just kind of like looking at this being like, holy, holy shit. Like, like, no, there should be a person who's running that city essentially like a business. And if, you know, whatever, graft, corruption, all that stuff that was associated with, you know, boss tweed. But but you can't argue that those cities during those periods were much better run in terms of like, okay, like this is actually going to get done. Instead, it's like captured by this just terrible bureaucracy of nimbyism and all this other bullshit. And so, like, I, I think that there has to be some version of alternative. It's just like competence. And, and like, I, I, don't, I, I still don't understand why we don't have more people trying to do that. Shall we end on that mystery? Well, sounds good. Amjad, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Moment of Zen. Yeah, that was really fun. By the way, Genie's idea, before I forget, Eric, Vivek as a guest. You can score him. We're in a signal chat. Vivek as a guest. Yeah. We we, we should get Gary Tan, too. I actually think that was a great suggestion, Amjad. Yeah. Because I think we should be talking about him, like mm -hmm. his vision for San Francisco and, and telling his story a little bit more. Definitely. He'd be better. I mean, he's than also the president Tandler. of YC. That's a, that's a good, good guest to get. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. 
SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 